The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. passage of Exodus 20, 18 through 21, and verse 20 is going to actually be the central focus of what I will say to you, but I'll also read from Hebrews chapter 12. We read in Exodus now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And then in the book of Hebrews, written by an anonymous author, but certainly within the apostolic circle and in that day, inspired by God, we have Hebrews 12, where the author pictures first Mount Sinai and then another mountain, so to speak, called Mount Zion, where God's saved people dwell. Listen to what is written. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, that if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is God's holy word. John Bunyan, you probably know, wrote the classic work called Pilgrim's Progress, one of the great best-selling books of all time. A couple hundred years ago in pioneer days in America, if a, if a house had two books, one was probably a Bible, and there's a good chance the other book was Pilgrim's Progress. This is a fictional allegory that traces the Christian life traces events symbolically that happen to Christians, and so the main character of the book is Christian, who is traveling to the place called the Celestial City, which of course is heaven. And he's carrying his burden of sins with him that he hopes to find relinquished along the way. 
At one point, Pilgrim gets some advice. He's told to take a shortcut and go to visit a man whose name is Legality. And Legality dwells in a village named Morality. And so in spiritual terms, of course, this means sending Christian to find the release of his sins through the means of God's law. And so Christian takes the path that leads to the village of morality, and as he goes, it brings him ever closer to a looming great mountain. And he's surprised at how this mountain sort of suddenly comes up, and and suddenly it's towering above him, and it almost seems like it's leaning over him as if it will collapse and crush him. And then he notices that there are flashes of fire and smoke from the mountain. It's all very threatening. And Bunyan didn't call this mountain Mount Sinai, but you get the picture pretty clearly. Because as approaching legality and morality, he, of course, is coming to the law of God and to the place where God gave that law. And yet, the experience did not bring him the relief of his sins. It only made him more afraid and unsatisfied, and he got away from that place as quickly as he could. Because there, represented in in a fictional allegory, is once again the truth of the Scripture itself, that while the law of God has power to show us His judgment and make us be accountable and even guilty and ashamed, it does not in itself have the power to save us and to take away our sin. Looking to Exodus 20, and I've said especially these last verses of that chapter, that cap off what God wants us to learn about the drama of Mount Sinai, what was going on there as he was instructing Israel and Moses and us as well so long ago. And I remind you of what I've said numerous times along the way, that the law of God was not given to save us. It is not a stepladder to help us attain some plateau called morality where we suddenly can say to God, I've made it. I've climbed up by your law, and I'm sure you'll be pleased with me now. Rather, God's law does at least these two important things that we've seen along the way. It shows us the character of God. It shows us how astonishingly great and holy He is. And it therefore, as it reveals Sin, it shows the seriousness of sin and leaves us feeling helpless and weak and even terrified, not just before a great God who is creator and powerful, but also under this burden that there's a judge, God the judge, who would have to condemn us and pronounce us utterly guilty because the law itself, while it makes us aware of sin, does not remove our sin. So first of all today, in this, these last few verses of Exodus 20, I want to remind you of how, once again, the phenomena of Mount Sinai are mentioned here. The fire, the earth tremors, the smoke. We first read about them in chapter 19. And I want you to see once again how these fearful signs around Mount Sinai, supernaturally given signs, represent the ultimate consequences of disobedience to God's law. If you would glance back, if your Bible's open, look in chapter 19, the middle of chapter 19, where this was first described, verse 16 and following, 
where we read that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet blast, and we're made to believe that that trumpet was no instrument forged in this world. And God had warned, stay off the mountain, don't touch the mountain. He was wanting Israel to be impressed, and yes, in some degree of reverential fear. As we read in 1918 of Exodus, that the Lord descended there. Now that does not say that God's form was visible, and yet in these phenomena that were going on, certainly they were given to show us that something grand, something amazing, something unprecedented was about to happen. I was trying to think of a way in which a both visual and audible sight like this would be impressed on us today, and I thought about perhaps going to an IMAX theater. There's one, as you may know, a couple miles from here. And you can, I haven't been in it yet, but I've been to other ones. And I know you go, you sit, and here's this enormous screen, perhaps as high as the ceiling of this sanctuary. And you're not very far from it. And you've got the booming sound system and the tremendous sights of a volcano or, or a hurricane or some, something that just sweeps you up. And you sit there entranced and taken in by this. Well, Mount Sinai was the original IMAX as God brought these signs unforgettably before his people. Try to think of something in your life that has impressed you, a sight that's indelibly on your memory, and at least if you're a teenager or older, you think perhaps 11 years back to that September day when we all saw two airplanes sticking out of what were then the World Trade Towers in New York City. And then to our fascinated and horrified eyes, we saw those structures so tall, so amazingly representative of the technology of man and of the commerce of man, standing proud in one of mankind's proudest cities, fall to the earth with a great crash. I'm sure if you saw that, it's a sight you're never going to really forget. Well, God, I think, was searing on the memory, on the retinas, of each observer long ago, the site of Mount Sinai. So they would be impressed and remember, here was God dealing with them. And what he was communicating was that his own person was exalted and high and beyond their control. Because you see, soon the Israelites were going to be interacting with people in their vicinity, and they had already interacted with the Egyptians, of course, who had all kinds of man-made gods, stone gods, wooden gods, gods that a man would make and put it up on a shelf and pray to it or venerate it or bring gifts of food to it. There's my God. And the real God was saying, I'm no tame deity like that. In fact, there's nothing tame or safe about me at all. I am high and lifted up. I'm the creator. I spoke stars and galaxies into being. The black holes of space are my footprints in the cosmos. And for me to come and display the trembling of the earth and fire and smoke and the sound of a great trumpet, this is nothing. But that you would know that I am a great God over all the earth. And thereby know that as God reveals principles that could not have come in the concise and marvelous fashion that we have them, merely out of the mind of Moses, a a man, an 80-year-old man there in the wilderness. That these are laws 
that are the expression of the very will and principles of the living, true Creator God, the judge over all. And therefore, as people drew back in terror, it wasn't just because the earth was trembling or there was fire or there was smoke. It was that they began to understand that this God is a judge. And they had broken certainly some of his laws, if not all of his laws. And in fact, we've seen as we've gone through them that we've broken every one of them. In thought, if not in action, we're guilty of them all. And we must face this God, guilty of His law. Charles Spurgeon wrote about that day at Mount Sinai. The great preacher said, Here is the booming of God's dreadful artillery. Here the salvos of His cannons led authority to every syllable He utters. And the fearful spectacle around that mountain was, Spurgeon said, a rehearsal for what the condemned without Christ would witness on the final day of judgment. It was a peek through a hole in the fence to say, here is what you too will face if you are a lawbreaker and you face God with no relief for your sins. Second place then, look at Exodus 20 and verse 20 for what is said about Moses, the mediator with God. I'm sure that not all of you here have necessarily been in a crisis in your life where you saw a summons to attend court and give an account for yourself, or where someone was suing you or your business was in a major problem and, and you knew that somebody had to deal with complex issues of the law or you were in trouble. But if you have experienced any of that, you know that one of your first instincts is, I need an attorney. I need a good attorney. I need an attorney who is knowledgeable and an attorney who can stand with me and weave through the complexities of the law and answer to a judge and help me and argue my case and give me protective guidance. I dare not face this crisis, whether it be financial or legal or whatever, alone without an advisor. Well, that's how Israel responded to this IMAX exhibition of God. They said, we've, we've seen the evidence of God here. We need help. We need somebody who will speak to God and speak from God. But we're pretty scared to speak to God directly if he's this kind of God. And so they spoke to Moses and said, Moses, look, thank goodness you're here You go and meet with God and then come and tell us what God says. But do not let God speak to us directly lest we die. They got the IMAX message that this God of judgment was not someone that they could speak casually to. And they were overcome with dread of him. There was nothing warm and fuzzy about him. They said, look, we need a protective buffer And later on in Deuteronomy 5, Moses looked back on this day and he told Israel, I stood between the Lord and you on that day. The only one who could enter that place. Marvelous description in 2021 of Exodus. The phrase, the thick darkness where God was. The only person who could enter the thick 
darkness where God was, was the mediator whom God approved. And now, look at the purpose that Moses told them God had in mind for creating this whole vivid scene. Verse 20 tells it. It's the crucial statement here. Moses said, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and you may not sin. Interesting statement. Don't be afraid, but God wants the fear of him to remain before you. It seems to be saying God's not interested in terrifying you or having you simply quake as if your knees were made of jelly, and yet there is a fear of him that he does intend and does desire to stand over you and be something you would look to all your days. If I could paraphrase, I believe Moses was telling Israel and telling us, don't fear God in terms of terror. If you had to face his justice alone, you you do well to be terrified, but you don't need to face that. So let your paralyzing fear give way to a healthy respect and awe of God who is preparing a way for you to come through a mediator. And for sake of time, I'm skipping over many things that could be said in between, but I'm going right to this statement in the third place today. Moses was a mediator with God as far as the law was concerned, but thirdly, we have a better mediator than Moses. We don't want to diminish Moses' task. It was an important one. We had to have the law, but there's more to it than that. And Moses was only a temporary stand-in for the much greater mediator who would come, even Jesus Christ himself. You see, the law of God through Moses teaches us what we need to do and makes us realize we cannot do it. And yet we still know and still feel why we need a lawyer. We need a go-between. We need somebody to deal with this righteous, holy God. Is there somebody? You see, the law, by creating this need, sends us running to Jesus Christ, as he is described in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all as a testimony spoken of in the proper time. The New Testament book of Hebrews is wonderful. I remember very vividly preaching through that book quite a few years ago to you. I don't know, I think it was over 40 weeks we went through the book of Hebrews. And time and again, its doctrine of showing Christ and his superiority And it relates to this topic. Hebrews 3.3 calls Jesus, who has been found worthy of more glory than Moses. Hebrews 9.15 says that he is the mediator of a new and better covenant. Moses was the mediator of God's law. Jesus Christ is the mediator of God's wonderful, redeeming grace. And so we have this premier passage that I read for you, only a part of Hebrews 12 this morning. But I would have you consider it for a moment. As this author tries to draw together Old Testament and New, giving of the law and the Christian, and he speaks of two symbolic mountains, 
Mount Sinai is clearly what he's talking about first, and then what he calls Mount Zion, which is a term that describes the gospel and the people of God, the kingdom of God, the saved in Christ. And so by trusting Christ, we're being told why we have a refuge from the terrors of the first mountain. Yes, you do well to understand the terror that comes from knowing that you're helpless before the law of God, but that's not where you have to stay. As a Christian, Hebrews 12:22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn. You have come to God, the judge of all, the one that made you so terrified at Mount Sinai. You can come to him. You can come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. These are the saints of the world who have departed and are with Christ. And you can come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Why would you stay at the old mountain when God has revealed the glories of what he calls Mount Zion? Yes, at the old mountain we find out that we are all in our own way Mentally, if not in physical actions, certainly within our minds, we are idolaters, we are Sabbath breakers, we are liars, murderers, adulterers. We covet every single day. There is no one who keeps God's law, not anyone in this room. But someone has kept it on our behalf. The Scripture says, He who had no sin at all became sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore, Romans 8.1 reports that great sentence, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's condemnation for everybody at Mount Sinai. But those who trust Christ, the condemnation passed on to Him. And it's not on you any longer. Either I am accepted for what Jesus Christ has done for me as my perfect mediator, or I will not be accepted by God. And so I end this series of messages with Exodus 20.20. Moses is saying it's not God's purpose that you go through life in terror and in uncertainty and thinking that God is going to squash you like a bug. But having perhaps glimpsed that, needing to glimpse that, you would discover a new fear, a proper fear of God, which is reverence and awe and praise and humility before his grand exalted self. And in that posture, you meet his son, the mediator. Jesus Christ. And once you meet him, your devastating fear of God's supreme holiness becomes a healthy fear marked by reverence and grateful attempts to obey and live his law. You desperately need a mediator to stand between you and God. You need a defense attorney. Be sure you choose the only one of which heaven approves. Our Father, we thank you for your law. 
we say with the psalmist, oh, how we love it, because it teaches us what we are and how far we are from you. It slays us in a real manner of speaking, and yet it is not your intent that we would remain dead under the law. Thank you for Christ, the mediator of a better covenant, the mediator whose blood solves the problem for we who are dead in our trespasses and sins. I pray, O God, if there is one without this mediator living in the center of their trust and their devotion, that you would turn that heart to Jesus Christ even now. Amen.